Okay, let's turn to Ephesians, please. Ephesians chapter 1. We're still collecting new toys for the Salvation Army. And it breaks my heart to say no guns or knives. So it's all we had when we were kids. Treasures for Children campaign. No, that's it's something you can drop off at the information table. We're going to be done with it. It's almost closing time on December 8th. So regular schedule's back on. These holidays throw a monkey wrench in my research, my study. So we will be meeting this Wednesday and the following Wednesday. Check the weather, though. Keep the weather. I'll be always in touch with our weatherman here. And also next Thursday will be Power Gospel Night. Right, Phil? A week from, yeah. Right, a week, like December 12th. December 12th. So be there. Brian will be singing that night, and um, the next time he preaches here, he will be singing the entire message. So, it's all in punishment for what he said to poor Jennifer today. Well, we've used, we've had to employ a lot of languages here in teaching the scriptures. There's Hebrew, there's Aramaic, and there's Greek, and we use Latin sometimes, but today I want to start off with a Japanese word. And it's called Takotsubo. Who knows, maybe this message will get over to Japan. Takotsubo. It's an octopus trap. But there is in cardiology a broken-hearted syndrome. In fact, Takotsubo is literally a broken-hearted or broken-heart syndrome. And the Japanese term is used for this syndrome. It's a cardiomyopathy because of the ballooning or the bulging of the left ventricle, which is the major pumping chamber of the heart, during the occurrence of its sudden weakening. And this is called broken heart syndrome. And because the heart or the ventricle resembles a takotsubo, which is a pot used by Japanese fishermen to trap octopuses, The broken heart syndrome can have multiple causes, like sudden illness, an intense argument, so I'm sure it's happened over Thanksgiving, the loss of a loved one, which is, of course, much more serious, a natural disaster, like an earthquake, and I was kind of stunned to read that even public speaking is a cause for this, and I think that's true. My heart goes through all kinds of changes just before I speak. The condition happens almost 90% in women, however, and it is reversible. And I'm saying all this for a purpose, and I hope you see it within the course of the message. And this is according to the Harvard Women's Health Watch. And therefore, the broken heart syndrome is a condition that happens to be listed along with captivity as conditions that are reversed by the anointed one, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so quite literally, you can be healed of a broken heart. And metaphorically speaking, there are many brokenhearted today. Blessed are the brokenhearted because they will be mended and bound up by the great physician. And so this is one of the conditions in Isaiah 61.1 reversed by the anointed one, Jesus Christ. And I have little doubt that he himself experienced Tako Subo, 
during his endurance of the cross, probably literally. While he was enacting the binding up or the healing of the brokenhearted, the bride of Christ, as Christus Medicus, Christ our doctor, to bind up the broken heart of his bride, the Lord Jesus Christ endured the broken heart syndrome, the taco subo. Now, in the cross-pollination of doing and living theology with the doctrine of the mystery, we're approaching the cross, and so we're going to both stand in its shadow and in its light. There's something strange about the cross, something wonderful. We stand in its shadow, and we live in its light. In DLT, we have considered that the two divine missions have an external term, They are directed toward a divine objective. The mystery is descriptive of that objective. And so we have a tremendous cross section between doing and living theology, which we talk about the divine missions, which has an objective and the mystery, which is descriptive of that objective. And so that's where the cross section happens between these two series. And so today, I want to consult with someone who is called Maximus the Confessor. He's one of the people I I read about in both Jürgen Moltmann and Ilaria Ramelli's masterpiece, The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis, which took her 16 years of research. And in her book, Maximus the Confessor, he lived from about 580 A.D. to 662, 82 years of living, and a lot of it was as a productive theologian. And in her book, Maximus the Confessor appears on page 738 with the title, the subtitle, Maximus the Confessor, Apocatastasis as a Mystery. Now, you can imagine my excitement in my study when I see these things. It might not excite you, but it gets me all thrilled. On page 739, Romelli reproduces a paragraph from Maximus's work called Ambigua Ad Tomum, there's Latin for you, which simply means doubtful points to Thomas. And in that, Maximus related 1 Corinthians 15, 28, one of the favorite verses of all the patristic theologians from Origen to Ariagena or John Scotus. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, he relates to the final restoration, and he calls it the Maximus Mysterium of Paul. And here's the quote from Maximus. God will truly come to be all in all, embracing all and giving substance to all in himself. In that no being will have any more a movement independent of God. And no being will be deprived of God's presence. Talk about healing the brokenhearted. Thanks to this presence, we shall be, and we shall be called gods and children, body and limbs, because we shall be restored to the perfection of God's project. Added to this, and this is how things happen in my study, and I'm grateful for your prayers because in my study, things happen providentially. We might call it coincidentally, but very, it's astonishing. Added to this, I read recently the illuminating series of meditations by David Bentley Hart. 
called that all shall be saved. In the title, he has all, all caps, and saved, all caps. The longer title is Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. I discovered there that David Bentley Hart was particularly impressed with Maximus, the confessor, saying of him that he is, quote, among the subtlest and most rigorous thinkers on the doctrine of Christ in the history of either Eastern or Western Christianity. That's not enough, though. On top of that, I stumbled upon and discovered a gem in a book, which is a doctoral thesis of a man named Brock Bingaman. And this is what the title is. I can't believe this happens. All Things New, The Trinitarian Nature of the Human Calling in Maximus the Confessor and Jürgen Moltmann. My two, well, one of my favorite modern and one of my favorite ancient theologians. The title alone is striking. My attention, therefore, obviously, was being drawn to Maximus the Confessor, I think, by the Holy Spirit. On page 33 of that book, I was mildly astonished to read the following excerpt from Maximus. Listen carefully to it. I say astonished because 14 centuries ago, he commented on what he called the Mysterium Magnum, of which Paul speaks. In this comment, Maximus gave a precise definition of the external term of the divine missions. I've been groping for a definition of it. Listen carefully to these words, and I've, when you get this in print, you'll see some of them in bold, and the bold will be ARK. That's my emphasis. Quote from Maximus the Confessor, around 650 or so A.D. Quote, here is the great and hidden mystery. This is the blessed end, the goal, for whose sake everything was created. This was the divine purpose that lay before the beginning of all things. With this goal in mind... God called the natures of things into existence. This is the limit toward which providence and all things it protects are moving, where creatures realize their re-entry into God. This is the mystery spanning all the ages. I've emphasized this. This is the mystery spanning all the ages, revealing the supremely infinite, and infinitely inconceivable plan of God, which exists in all its greatness before all the ages. For Christ's sake, or for the sake of the mystery of Christ, all the ages and all the beings they contain took their beginning and their end in Christ. For that synthesis, that he emphasizes that word, for that synthesis was already conceived before all the ages the synthesis of limit and the unlimited, of measure and the immeasurable, of circumcision and the uncircumcised, of the creator with the creature, of rest with movement, that synthesis which in these last days has become visible in Christ, bringing the plan of God to its fulfillment through itself. And so the epicenter of this synthesis is Jesus' endurance of the unspeakable death of the cross. That's the epicenter from which this whole thing emits. The cross of Christ and his endurance 
of labor on the cross was the labor that would bring forth the new creation of all things. That's how the impact of the cross impresses me. The horizon of this synthesis is the inconceivably vast reconciliation of every being and everything in the heavens and earth. And so coincidental, I would read it as providential occurrences like these in my study lend have lent. And I'm grateful for this to the father. They have lent confirmation to me that we're on a path laid out for us by the Holy spirit. It's amazing that in the doctrine of the mystery and in the doing and living of theology, our Wednesday series that we've been groping for a definition of the appropriate external term of the divine missions and attempting to relate that term or objective or goal to the doctrine of the mystery. And what happens? A detailed definition falls into our laps from a theologian of the seventh century. Along with a description of the appropriate external term as the mystery being the mystery itself. We have been approaching the mystery by an exegesis of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. That's, it's going to be sort of a light exegesis. I'm staying lean to the text because I want to get up to the reference to the mystery in 1-9. And so we're approaching it from 1-1 onwards. We've been approaching it by an exegesis of a single run-on sentence in the Greek text, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. This single Greek sentence functions both as a doxology and a benediction, a glorification of God and a benediction or blessing to all mankind. It is also both an overture and a summary of the entire epistle to the Ephesians. And that epistle I call Paul's primal epistle. His preeminent message in which he gives an immaculate account of the mystery of the gospel. And you'll be noting that as we exegete this, that we'll be reaching forward to various verses in Ephesians. That's Ephesians 6.19. So far, we've found the following translation of Ephesians, and I haven't expanded it much. I've stayed pretty close to what it says in without expanding, and we have this beginning with verses 1 and 2. We have this from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Two, saints and participants. The word en Ephesus or en Epheso is not found in most manuscripts. This is intended to be written to you and to on the level of our own time to address all who have been set apart in Christ, who have been awakened to faith in Jesus Christ as you have by the Holy Spirit. And so it is uniquely tailor fitted to our time. And so NFSO isn't found in the best manuscripts. In fact, this epistle was probably written to initially to saints in Laodicea, where Paul hadn't been before. He had been to Ephesus a lot. And so he talks to them as if he hadn't seen them before. And so it can't be to Ephesus originally. The epistle did circulate to the churches in Ephesus also. But so we have from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to tetelestai phalanx, or <laughs> saints and participants, in the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that run-on sentence begins with verse 3, and we have this translation so far. 
praised be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with the fullness of blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, insofar as in love he elected us in him before the creation of the universe, like Maximus said, to be sanctified and without blemish before him, predestinating us for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself. Now, you notice that I inserted in love in a more prominent position in this passage than is usually the case in English translations, and I think they miss it. In love belongs before election, before predestination, before everything else. After all, God is love in 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16, and God as love is the foundation of his plan for all of creation, including humankind in all of its times. Marcus Barth, whose commentary on this I read, seems to agree with the prominence of God's love in this passage. On page 82 and 83 of his own commentary on Ephesians, Marcus Barth, the son of Karl Barth, wrote the following. Two things, he said, appear certain. One, the election of men by God, and he means men and women, of course, and his outgoing grace are inseparably connected with God's warm and personal relationship to Jesus Christ. And election cannot be separated from love, or else another election is spoken of than the one discussed in the overture to Ephesians. That's why I put in love in a prominent position. The next phrase in this glorious run-on sentence, following predestinating us for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself, is the Greek phrase katatein eudokian to thelematos autu, which is simply according to the gracious intention of his will. Eudokian here is a word that simply means gracious intention. Good intention, but gracious, benevolent intention. Eudokian, and it means E-U-D-O-K-I-A-N. It means God's gracious intention, his great intention, his benevolent and beneficent intention, fully benevolent to all mankind, no malevolence, no mean-spiritedness to it at all. Here we're confronted for the second time, the first time in Ephesians 1.1, with the will of God. Thalematos, or Thalema, autu, God's will. This time, the will of God is in accordance with or in harmony with his gracious or benevolent intention. God's intention is entirely gracious. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. God's intention is thoroughly gracious. And for that, I considered Ephesians and Hebrews. We're considering Hebrews in DLT. Hebrews 2.8 says, By the grace of God, Jesus, having been made for a little while lower than angels, tasted death for everybody, for everyone. That's all humanity in all of its times. That's God's grace. And that, in order to 
bring many sons to glory, to bring many adopted sons and daughters to glory, many meaning all humanity. Hebrews 2, 8 to 10. And as Ephesians 2, 5 and 2, 8 chimes in, 2, 8 says, by grace you have been saved and are being saved and will still be saved. All those tenses fit into that one perfect tense of sozo. By grace you have been saved and are being saved and will still be saved to the age of the ages. Human beings are not eternally saved by their works. That's pretty much established among most Christians. And we are all saved by the grace of God, uncontingent and unconditional, by which Jesus tasted death for everyone. We are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, John 19.30. No one is saved by works, neither is anyone saved by their own faith. We are all saved by the faith, that is, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. If it's our faith, then there's some merit still attached. There's something human in it. But it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ which is another term for his obedience to the Father's universally saving will, a meritorious obedience to the utmost extent of the death of the cross. God the Father has always had in his eternal mind the salvation of all. He doesn't think anything else is thinkable. And so I can imagine him kind of wincing when he hears a lot of messages being preached. To the contrary, the death of the cross, Philippians 2, 8, the death of the cross, not just crucifixion, the death of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ was the tasting of the wages of sin for all of humankind by one Jesus, humankind's sir, sir Jesus, single inclusive representative of all humankind. It was his drinking to the dregs of the cup. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It was the drinking to the dregs of the cup of absolute death for all of humankind and all of its times, so that having put away sin, which Paul calls the sting of death, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, he put away Sin, which puts the sting in death. If he put away sin, which is the sting of death, there's no more sting left to death. And we don't see death in John 8:51. We have our last exhale here and our first inhale there. And it's something that's overrated by people. People live all their lives in fear of it. And Jesus Christ came to take away that fear. Perfect love drives out all fear. The last thing we ought to be afraid of is death. Death has been vanquished. The sting of death removed because Christ put away sin by the offering of himself. And he emptied a region called hell by his own self-emptying called kenosis. Now, you see, that's a very important part of the gospel. And the more I preach this, the more I go through takotsubo in a way, metaphorically speaking, a broken heart syndrome, that this is resisted in churches and resisted in 
TV evangelism and resisted almost everywhere. But thankfully, it's taking hold. Because draw or drag, we're all coming. So, the death of the cross means that Jesus has annihilated death. Death is not just personified. It's a place. It's called Thanatos. Don't be afraid. I have the keys of Thanatos, death, and of Hades, Hades. I have the keys. That means he emptied and evacuated those places, and he holds the keys so they can never be opened again. That's what that means. That's why you don't fear anything for anybody. You don't fear that dear old uncle so-and-so is roasting in hell because he was a very fierce type of individual. Not so. So then, having tasted death for everyone, death and Hades have been effectively annihilated. Revelation 117 to 18. He was dead. I like how he introduces himself, the Son of Man, to John on the Isle of Patmos. I was dead, and yet look at me now, I'm alive with a life that goes on and on and on, a kind of life you've never seen before. I'm alive forevermore. Having tasted death for everyone, death and Hades have been effectively annihilated and evacuated. He was dead Not just dead as we know death. He was dead in the absolute death that is called the wages of sin. But now he's alive forevermore, having taken away the sin of the world, John 1.29, as God's paschal lamb, and having conquered death, and having risen from the dead. For the wages of sin is death, and all sinned, So the wages of sin is for all, but the gift of God for the same all is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul assumed his audience would understand that. He probably didn't understand that the audience of our time not only doesn't understand it, but fights it. Not in totality, thankfully. The wages that sin pays is death for all who sinned, and that's all. But the gift of God is eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23, who became sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Not that we might be made, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God, therefore, in accordance with his gracious intention, has made Jesus to be wisdom for us righteousness for us, holiness for us, and redemption for us in 1 Corinthians one thirty. So we're now in the Lamb without blemish. God ordained from eternity, from before the creation of the world, that we would be without blemish before him in love. And there's only one way for us to be without blemish, and that's to be in the Lamb without blemish, who offered himself without blemish to God through the eternal spirit. So we are without blemish because we're in the lamb without blemish who happened to have been slain before the creation of the universe, according to Revelation 13.8. Compare Revelation 13.8 with Ephesians 1.4, and you might have an insight. The Son of Man, in Revelation 1.17 and 18, who holds the keys 
of death and Hades. Now, why is he holding the keys and then saying, don't fear? Because him having the keys means that those regions will never be reopened, ever. They will never admit someone. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. And so that's what Romans 14, 9 says. The son of man who holds the keys of death, Thanatos, and of Hades, because of his own self-emptying, or kenosis, as Philippians 2, 5 through 7 teaches, has emptied these regions once and for all. If we understand the self-emptying of God the Son and his becoming a slave and his obedience to the extent of death on the cross, the death of the cross, we understand that regions that we fear people are going to have been evacuated once and for all. And that's an image of what Christ did. The universal impact of his cross includes the evacuation of death, Thanatos, as a place, and Hades as a place. The Son of Man has emptied these regions once and for all. No one can consign anyone there. You can tell people to go there all day long if you want. But no one can go there, nor can anyone take credit for having emptied these prisons. But the one who said this in his first sermon in Isaiah 61, recorded in Luke 4.18, he says, the spirit of Yahweh, listen carefully to this, the spirit of Yahweh Elohim is upon me, said Jesus, because Yahweh the Father has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. What's a church place for the anointed one to heal the brokenhearted, to enrich the poor, to lift up the downtrodden, to exalt the humble. The annihilation of death in the Christ event is therefore metaphorically referred to as the evacuation of Hades. This anticipates Ephesians 1.7, which proclaims our freedom that was won through the blood of Jesus Christ and our forgiveness of trespasses, which we now possess as an everlasting possession. This also looks forward to Ephesians 4.8, which depicts the redemption as a release of captives and how Christ came to save the captives, especially the rebellious, from Isaiah 68.17 and 18. Ephesians 1, therefore, 5, reads this way. This is our translation. We're proceeding rather rapidly. Predestinating us for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the gracious purpose of his will. The next time we see the will of God will be in Ephesians 1.9, where Paul speaks of the mystery of God's will. Hence the doctrine of the mystery. For now, it's just very crucial that we understand that God's will is connected with his gracious purpose. And this gracious intention is entirely from front to back, from top to bottom, redemptive. 
or salvific. Where we see the will of God in prominence is in 1 Timothy 2.4. It's described as God our Savior who wills fellow that all human beings get saved and come elthane to the knowledge of the truth. There's a nice sweet kind of rhyme in 1 Timothy 2.4 in the Greek. As I look at it right here, it's, it's a beautiful thing compared to the English. It has the word elth, elthane, which means to come, and thele, T-H-E-L-E-I, God wills, and then it has E-L-T-H-E-I-N. In the Greek, it's a, it's a thing of beauty. It's like these two jive together very well. And so in 1 Timothy 2.4, it says, God wills that all human beings get saved and come, elthane, to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth. Now, this is a beautiful thing because, A, God has saved all of humanity in the Christ event. B, not everyone has come to the knowledge of that truth. So evangelism today doesn't preach to get people saved. It proclaims the salvation so that people can come to the knowledge of the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ and in the gospel that he took away sin and that now all of humanity is effectively in Christ and made alive, not in Adam to die. The knowledge of the truth here is none other than the knowledge of the Son of God, epinosis of the Son of God to which all humanity is destined to come. Ephesians 4.13 predicts and prophesies the coming of all to the knowledge of the Son of God. That means experiential knowledge of the Son of God and to the unity of the faith. All of humanity is destined to come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of what it means to be human as demonstrated in one Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is is the only truly, fully human being. And those in him are destined to be truly, fully human beings. We're going to be living in a society, in an urban society called the New Jerusalem, and with the privilege of travel throughout a measureless and ever-expanding new creation or universe as truly human beings. For the first time, what a wonderful thing the new creation will be. The knowledge of the truth is the knowledge of the Son of God. 1 Timothy 2.4, Ephesians 4.13. It is the knowledge of the Son. If you come to know the Son, you will be free indeed, Jesus says. Free indeed doesn't just mean free from sin. It means free to do the will of God joyously. That's free indeed. And that is something that we're going to take up. It's one of the most remarkable, practical, transformative doctrines I've ever read, and I'm going to hit it pretty soon. The knowledge of the Son is inextricably linked to the ultimate freedom, John 8, 36, the freedom that we now possess by the blood of Christ, freedom for which Christ freed us, Galatians 5, 1, freedom that is free indeed, freedom That means no being will have any more a movement independent of God. It'll be God in us willing and working, and we in God willing and working. And it will be 
all rational beings, including human beings, will willingly and freely will and do as God wills and does in us. That's freedom. And that doesn't mean autonomy, that we become automatons or puppets, but as those who freely function in their natural will, liberated from what Maximus called the gnomic will, which is the one enslaved and tainted by sin, freed from the gnomic will, we will function in our natural will, which bears the image of God, and we will act freely in a way that we haven't even ever experienced freedom, but that freedom will be in accordance with God's own freedom and God's willing and doing in us. That's truly freedom. So Ephesians 1.3, here's how the run-on sentence begins and how it goes on through verse 7. Praise be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with the fullness of blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Insofar as in love... He elected us in him before the creation of the universe to be sanctified and without blemish before him, predestinating us for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself according to the gracious purpose or intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's Christ the beloved. In whom, verse 7, we possess redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of all trespasses. I'll explain that sometime, that all trespasses are indicated here by the very construction of the Greek. The forgiveness of trespasses means the forgiveness of all trespasses according to the wealth of his grace. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, is called a double accusative of reference and result. We possess, in other words, have is too weak. Possess or own is better. We own a permanent and enduring possession, which is called redemption through the blood of Christ. And the result of that owning of that possession is the forgiveness of all trespasses. The redemption, the forgiveness of trespasses, is a construct in the Greek text which necessitates the translation, the redemption, the forgiveness of all trespasses. Later in Ephesians, in 4.32, and this gets very practical, we're told that God forgave us for Christ's sake. Father, forgive them. The Father does. The Father forgave the whole of the human race for Christ's sake and because of Christ's petition, because of Christ. And because he put away sin, Jesus did, by the offering of himself to God as the lamb without defect or blemish. So it's impossible to dissociate the blood of Christ from his identity as the lamb of God. Whenever blood is used of Christ, it refers to him exclusively and always as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the lambs that bled. It's Christ whose death took away not the sin of Israel for a year, but the sin of all humanity for all time, past, present, and future. This compact truth is found also in Hebrews 9.26 as well as John 1.21. As God's lamb, Jesus took away the sin of the world. This compact truth 
is of our possession of redemption through his blood. If you want to read where it's fanned out, read Romans 3, 23 to 25a and Romans 5, 15 to 21. I was going to hammer those today, but that would be too much for you. Paul is telling all his readers of this epistle, including us, and let's say today especially us, about what happened to us. This is what happened to you. In the cross of Jesus Christ, redemption was created for all of humankind. God doesn't use half measures. God doesn't predestine in love some to hell and some to heaven. He predestined his son to the rejection of crucifixion and to the resurrection and the election of life. And in him, we are all crucified and raised and seated with him in heavenly places. The initial recipients of this letter had been made aware of this for themselves by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul dictated this epistle from a little prison house, a jailhouse in Atamea, in close by, close to all of the churches in Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Laodicea, etc. In Ephesians 1.7, it's called the forgiveness of trespasses, tain afesen teis paraptomaten. But in Colossians 1.14, the twin epistle in one way, it's, there's a tremendous affinity between Colossians and Ephesians, it's obvious. He doesn't say the forgiveness of trespasses. He says the forgiveness of sins, hamartion, hamartion. And that means the point is that we permanently own the forgiveness of all sins because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, in 1 John 2, 1, is the propitiation of our sins and not only ours. And that really ought to just throw a humiliation to many of us. Not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. We're supposed to look upon the whole world as ripe for harvest, as their sins too have been put away. What a glorious thing it is to announce to people that their sins have been put away that they have the forgiveness of sins, that in Christ all will be made alive. That's the gospel. That's the truth. That's the word. In fact, Paul calls it the mystery of the gospel. It is a propitiation. Jesus Christ himself stands at the right hand of the Father, sits at the right hand of the Father as the propitiation of our sins, and not ours only, but the sins, hamartion, of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. Ephesians... The epistle, we'll call it that for now, teaches us that we have in our present and permanent possession the results of what Jesus did for all mankind. I've never been the same since I realized that if one died for all, that all died. Because that moment that I realized that, after years of deliberation, years of reflection, years of study almost every day without exception, for 40 years, it made me realize the love of Christ for all of humankind. And it began to work in me toward a love for all humankind. And then it changes you when you see the person at the grocery store, when you see the waitress or the server at the restaurant, or when you see someone who cuts you off in traffic even. You see, you say, well, I love them, sort of, but right now I don't like them too much. But the complementarity, I think that's a word. If it isn't, it just became one. 
The complementarity of Ephesians and Colossians is very well attested. Almost everybody that read both of them knows that. But not least here in Ephesians with the identification of Jesus Christ as the beloved in Ephesians 1.6. In whom we have the bestowal of grace. It's a bestowal of grace. It's uncontingent. It's unconditional. We have the redemption through his blood. And we have the resultant forgiveness of trespasses. This has been called a piggyback. The redemption through his blood and then piggybacking on that is the forgiveness of trespasses. The redemption by his blood and then the accusative of reference is followed by the accusative of result that piggybacks on the redemption. We have incidentally as a result of that forgiveness of all trespasses. The forgiveness of all the trespasses of the world belongs to us and includes all of our trespasses. And that will heal the brokenhearted too. Because the thing that breaks our heart more than anything is probably our recollection of our own sins, of the recollection of our own trespasses, of the recollection of our own own times in the past when we may have hurt, offended, and made wrong decisions that caused the hurt and the offense of others. It caused some to stumble. And then we... that is a broken-hearted syndrome. But God heals that. When Jesus had the spear driven into his side, blood sprayed out. And I don't doubt completely, at least, that that's because he had been through the Takatsubo and from that ventricle in which the blood coagulated and bulged came blood. I think that even physically he experienced a broken heart for you. I think he experienced a brokenheartedness for his bride and that that was the only way that he could heal her brokenheartedness. And the bride, of course, as we know, is not just a group of lucky people that struck the lottery, but a all things in created reality in all of its times married to Christ because, as we're going to learn, God's mystery of his will is to sum up all things in Christ. And that means to cause all things to be comprised of him. And that's almost too much to articulate. So in closing today, the beloved in whom we have the bestowal of grace through the redemption, through his blood, and the resultant forgiveness of trespasses, finds a mate in Colossians 1.13 as we hear about the son of God's love. The beloved in Ephesians 1.6 is the son of God's love in Colossians 1.13, into whose kingdom we have been transferred and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14, we own the forgiveness of the sins of the world as our own personal and collective possession. Together, our trespasses are included in that forgiveness. Our trespasses, my trespasses, your trespasses are included in that transaction. And that brings a, play, a thing called the Jubilee of celebration. That's what Jesus was referring to when he said, Let your kingdom come. When he talked about the forgiveness of trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, he's talking about 
and asking for the coming of the Jubilee, when all debts are forgiven, when all the past is forgiven, when everyone comes together in a joyous, unspeakably happy celebration, which will go on forever. And that's what the kingdom of God is. Let it come, Father. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So then, here's the thing, and here's the catch, and this is why a lot of Christian lives are screwed up. As Ephesians 5, 3 to 5 says, that's an unpopular thing because we don't like, we don't like to jump from 1, 10 to 5, 3 to 5, which shows a lifestyle that is exempt from the kingdom of God and of Christ. Exempt from the kingdom of God and of Christ. And there are certain ways to live that bar you from that experience in time, right now. It bars the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. So here's the practical bent to this. And I wanted to skip this. And then this morning, as I re-edited this thing for about the eighth time, the Holy Spirit said, bring it. Because you're a pastor. And I said, well, I like to be a teacher, but I don't always like to be a pastor. Because they got a rod and a staff, and they got to yank sheep around and bust wolves. I love busting wolves. That's fun. Now, I got you all scared, but don't have Takotsubo over it. We own the forgiveness of the sins of the world. We own the forgiveness of the sins of the world for ourselves. As our own personal and collective possession, our trespasses are included in that forgiveness. And we are urged with an urgency that we probably don't know how urgent it is to forgive others. As we have been forgiven by God For Christ's sake. And as an answer to his petition. While crucified. Ephesians 4.32. It is the definition of wickedness. To withhold forgiveness. From those who have wronged us. When we. Have been forgiven. For an infinite sin debt for the entire sin debt that we owed the debt's canceled it's like the parable Jesus said a man had a debt probably about 50 million dollars in today's money and his creditor sat down and wrote it off said I'm writing your debt off just frankly doing it that's it that's kind of like God does that he does that you don't know a thing I got the meal, I got the tip, I got the valet, I got everything. It's done. Then the same guy goes and chokes a guy on the street that owes him $12. That's how, it's supposed to be unattractive. And it's a, it's a, what the parables were often what we call cerebral cartoons. And I think it would be great to turn parables into cartoons because that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's cartooning the wickedness of people who hold on to forgiveness and don't forgive. And so it's the definition of wickedness to withhold forgiveness 
from those who have wronged us. And that means it's really the definition of wickedness to look upon anyone in the human race as one who is not the subject or object of God's forgiveness for Christ's sake. And so, by forgiving, we become imitators of God. Look it up yourself. Ephesians 4.32, forget the chapter divisions. Paul didn't write that. He didn't say, okay, Tychicus, put a five and a one there. He just kept going. Forgive one another as Christ, as God forgave us for Christ's sake. Be imitators of God. Become imitators of God. Who what? Forgave us for Christ's sake. Ephesians 5.1. And so we become imitators of God. And we begin to walk in love as Christ walked and offered himself as a fragrant aroma to God. Ephesians 5.2. By forgiving of those who trespass against us, we reap the benefits of forgiveness. By forgiveness, the kingdom of God comes. By forgiveness, the kingdom of God comes. The will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. With unforgiveness, we are barred from any experience. It's called inheritance, but it means experience. We are barred from any experience of the kingdom of God. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish the difference between the stimulation of human happiness and the true unspeakable joy of the kingdom of God. But you can have the stimulation of human happiness. I would give that up any day of the week and any moment of my life and every moment of my life for the unspeakable joy of knowing Jesus Christ in an experiential way, in a fellowship way, and knowing the Father and the Son. For to know the Father and the Son is eternal life. Now, by forgiveness of those who trespass against us. We reap the benefits of forgiveness. By forgiveness, the kingdom of God comes. By forgiveness, we confirm our love. Confirm your love to him, says Paul to the Corinthians. And so, forgive him. And cancel out Satan's advantage. And so, with unforgiveness, we're barred from any experience of the kingdom of God. That's what it means when it says, if you do not forgive, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. That simply means you withhold forgiveness as one who is forgiven. And the Father will bar you from the experience of love, joy, peace in the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You can't have it. Nobody has that and has unforgiveness. It can't be. It never is. So the happiness they seem to have isn't the kingdom of God. It's not the unspeakable joy of the kingdom of God. It's some human stimulation happiness that they're experiencing for the moment because they're ahead of somebody in some endeavor. And so that's not the kingdom of God. In fact, this stings. 
but we're also kept from the experience of the kingdom of God by sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, and stupid talk or coarse language. Now, that's a tough one for today because American Christians who know grace seem to advertise their freedom in their ability to use obscenity freely. I'm a Christian, but I can say the F word. That's not the proof that you're experiencing the kingdom of God. And in fact, it's proof that you're forfeiting the inheritance of it right then for a pseudo liberty. It's not liberty. It's not freedom. And that's become a new test case for people. Well, I can say, I can speak, I can tell dirty jokes, I can do this and all that. Now, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, you're a Christian, barred from the experience of the kingdom of God. Is it worth it? Well, I got to laugh. Wow. People think I'm cool. Whoa. Now, these are indications Ephesians 5, 3, and 4, read it yourself if you want. 5, 5, 2, and then 5, 6. Don't be deceived. I'm telling you this before Paul said I'm telling you again. I don't see Paul in any of his writings using obscenity. So I don't see Paul in any of his writings telling suggestive jokes. I don't see Paul doing that. And so, here's what the Holy Spirit told me. Yes, that's what I said. Here's what the Holy Spirit told me he's the spirit he's holy his love is holy love he is the proceeding from God of holy love he is the Holy Spirit he said this we should not make the proof of our freedom to be the use of obscenity or coarse language the real proof of our liberty is the verbal expression of thanks thanksgiving and then I read it it says but rather giving of thanks so you call up your friend and say hey I got a joke for you today no you call up your friend and say I got something I got to tell you that I'm thankful for today that's a proof of the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus the freedom to be thankful rather the giving of thanksgiving again we should not make the proof of our freedom the use of obscenity or coarse language. The real proof of our freedom is the verbal expression of thanks. In any case, in closing, with forgiveness, do I have the, yeah, okay, I have the trap door here. I'm going right through that and out the door and sliding into my car and speeding away. Be ready, Pam, we're out of here. No, I'm only kidding. I can take it. In any case, with forgiveness, the celebration of Jubilee comes, Leviticus 25. And with it, unspeakable joy. Putting off the old self, Ephesians 4.22. Putting on the new self. You know what that means? It means we put off the person who sits in outer darkness. Looking into the lit up party room. And we put on the person who enjoys the room lit up. With the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God that shines from the face of the host, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where once the gloom of tohu wa bohu, I was so tired the other day, I said, I, it took me 10 minutes to say tohu wa bohu. 
I was saying, whoa-hoo, wahoo, uh, yeah, yahoo. But uh, tohu wabohu is the state in which creation is not a long time ago, but right now. And it's the spirit brooding over the face of the deep that brings the kingdom, the order, the restoration of all things, the instauration, the setting of everything right through the death of the cross of Jesus Christ. Instauration. So we put off the old. The self that sits and looks from outer darkness into the lit up party room in the host, perhaps judging or perhaps wishing or perhaps living in one of the most insidious evils of our time, self-pity. When that sneaks up on me and I spend a minute in self-pity, man, do I get hammered. I mean, who do you, who hammers me? You say, God, the Holy Spirit. No, me. The new self kicks the old self out. And here's where our broken heart is healed. Here is where our broken heart is healed. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that every time the word goes forth, that there will be a healing of broken hearts. There will be an enriching of the poor. There will be a strengthening of the weak. And there will be the recognition that you weaken us in the way on purpose because the strongest warriors in Christ are weak in him. And yet we live by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are weak in him. Father, I pray that to tell us thy phalanx will march forward with an experience of the kingdom of God and pull us up short whenever we want to even momentarily sacrifice our experience and inheritance of the kingdom of God for some foolishness or for something that would redound to our own glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank